So we've been practicing together for three days now and probably some of our sort of rather hopeful fantasies about what our retreat experience would be like have started to get a bit of a reality check and uh, we find this process of being mindful being conscious, being present, is something that brings us very directly into contact with our life. And uh, that encounter is something that we really need to reflect on, to consider what it is to encounter our life. There's a wonderful cartoon, um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, but there's one, in wh- and so if you're not familiar, Calvin is a six-year-old boy, and most of the a- sort of action, in a way, takes place inside his head. And his faithful friend or companion, uh, Hobbes, is a stuffed tiger who's alive in Calvin's mind. So they get up to various things together. But in this particular cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes are sitting watching television. And a voice comes from outside of the frame. It's Calvin's mother saying, Calvin, go outside and play. And they're still sitting watching television. Some time passes. Another frame, Calvin, I said, go outside. Nothing happens. In the next frame, Calvin and Hobbes are flying through the air, obviously having been thrown out the door into the, the world to go and play. And Calvin's retort as he is flung into the world, he says... It's too real. (laughs) And I think sometimes we can relate to what his experience might be like in that situation. When we start to more deeply, more fully and more in a more sustained way encounter what is real. Because that's not always easy for us. We may actually long for it. We may wish to, in a way, escape from the compelling pull of the internal television screen with its stories, its narratives, its soap operas, its tragedies and its light entertainment. But there's something also for us about what it is to really enter our life consciously and fully. And when I... When I come into the into the hall to give a Dharma talk, I I feel very moved to take a moment to just stop and bow down to the Buddha, to just acknowledge my sense of appreciation for the remarkable teachings that he offered to, in one sense, me, but to us, certainly that have been incredibly beneficial for me in my life. And and in that, one of the things I'm aware of and I kind of feel the sense of, for all that he was a remarkable, incredible, gifted teacher and it seems a pretty uh, hard-nosed exponent of full-on meditation, we could say, um, he was also a very human sort of being. And uh, I was just reflecting on this, one of the, the passages from the teachings, the that always touches me. I shared it with one of the groups this morning or yesterday, I don't remember, where the uh, the Buddha is giving some teachings late into the evening and the, his followers are gathered around him and they're wrapped, they're really loving it, they're really sort of soaking up the offering of this uh, this remarkable teaching. And it's, it's and then at some point he, he turns to his, um, his attendant and Ananda, his cousin and also friend, and and he says, Ananda, these monks and nuns and lay followers, they're bright, they're alert. Their practice is good, they're interested to hear the Dharma. And he said, but Ananda, my back hurts. <laughs> and I'm tired. I'm going to lie down. You give them a Dharma talk. And... It touches me, that story. Um, And there are others that give a sense of of the the humanity of this person, this this human being who can sometimes get a little sort of deified in the telling of the stories of his remarkable 
encounters and practice and teachings. And this, this sense of how we come into contact with the humanness of our life, which is one of the very real dimensions of it, that this practice and this process asks us to open to and to deeply understand. We can say sometimes it's like life is a little bit in our face. We use that expression. I think you use it here also, is that right? In our face. It's like it doesn't sort of necessarily give us quite as much room as we might wish. It can be challenging. It can be intense, sometimes painful and harsh. And uh, of course, sometimes sweet and beautiful and touching. But what's interesting is that for for many of us, I would say perhaps for most of us, we have a sometimes uneasy relationship with the very sort of core sensitivity of what it means to be a human being. The fact that we are touched, impacted, affected, moved in so many different ways, both sweet at times and incredibly poignant at times. And uh, I was struck in the, uh, in the speakings and the sharings of the groups and individual interviews over these last couple of days, the number of people coming forth and speaking about something in which they're really touched or impacted. Maybe something sweet, beautiful, but equally often something really challenging, really difficult, and that sense of that encountering that dimension of our experience in the way that we do here, and of course in the way that we do in our lives. To, to just take a moment to reflect, to acknowledge the sensitivity of the human system, of what it is to be, what it is that we are, that we, we feel things deeply. And in the midst of that, there's this, this kind of underlying urge or drive or seeking that moves, that's looking in a way to somehow find some ease, to find some comfort, to find some release or relief from that impingement, that way in which we are impacted in different ways. And one of the ways that plays out is a tendency to kind of withdraw, to seek to pull back. And we've been uh, reflecting a little on the, the, the noticing of how we respond to the pleasant, the unpleasant and the neutral. And here, the response to the unpleasant or to the difficult, the painful, the scary or the threatening, isn't just that we don't like it or that we um, have some resistance to it, but that actually energetically, psychically and physically we can withdraw, contract, pull away from it. And it's, it's kind of interesting, it's fascinating because it's, it's something that's biological equally, equally as psychological in the sense that the, you know, the very earliest forms of life were just little cells swimming around in a soup of juice. And basically, if they found some good juice, it's like, great. That's the first form of craving, basically, is just you sort of expand into that. Suck it in as much as you can. That's what you need. Or if you find some toxic juice with some nasty chemicals in it, then, of course, you need to pull away. You shrink away from that. And, of course, there's, you know, 10, 100, I'm not sure how many billion cells in this body, all of which sometimes do that when they're impinged upon. They go... And they pull away. And this, this tendency, this pattern, this habit that we can feel that expresses itself in the, in, the, in the patterning of the mind equally as the body and the heart, we, we can notice that sometimes that plays out in the context of the meditation practice. And we can imagine or hope or perhaps actively and enthusiastically attempt to use the practice as a way of somehow escaping or getting away from this human sensitivity, this way in which we are touched and affected by things, to get a safe distance from it, as if I could sort of somehow step out of my experience and somehow remove myself from it. Sometimes we hear the teaching as though that's what we're supposed to be doing, and that's quite different than disentangling from our identification with it, or the sense of being lost in it, which is, of course, what we are encouraging. But to go in the other direction, in a sense, from being identified with entangled, to somehow trying to step away from, to become distant from, 
also, it turns out, is something we need to understand and address as a pattern, as a tendency. So we might sometimes find ourselves trying to get calm, to get peaceful. Not because there are inherently beautiful and supportive qualities in calm and peace, which there are, and these are things we do seek to cultivate, but because at some level we want that calm or that peace or that ability to steady my mind and keep it right in the present moment, we want that as a way of not having to feel and be touched, not having to actually fully inhabit what it is to be a human being. So, this practice, the genuine expression of Dharma practice and uh, these teachings is is not about escaping from our experience. It's not about removing ourselves from what is happening. But actually learning what it means to experientially open to life, to experience, to allow our life to touch us. And this asks of us the willingness to allow ourselves to be tender, to allow our heart to be tender at times in the contact with, in the touch with our experience. What tends to happen when we experience that which is painful, that which is difficult, that which is scary, unwished for, unwanted, and we all have these experiences in our lives, beginning right at the beginning and continuing on, this is part of the field of human life and experience. And with that, there's this unconscious tendency, until we make it conscious, until we look at it, we see this tendency to tighten, to harden, to contract. And so much of what we encounter when we engage in the practice, when we begin to settle in, when we start to sustain our attention a little more, as we encounter those places of tightness of hardness, of contraction, or perhaps of numbness or density that are there in the felt sense of the body. And we notice that they're uncomfortable. We don't wish to have those experiences generally. At least I don't wish to have them. I don't know. Maybe someone else feels differently about their version of that. But mostly what people report when they talk about it is that doesn't actually seem to be what they're actually wishing for in their experience. And that hardening, that tightening, that contracting, it's as if we're somehow trying to armor ourselves, defend ourselves, protect ourselves from life. And the effect of it, if we're not aware of it, if we're not conscious of it, and it's something that happens, I would say it's kind of endemic in our, in our world, in our culture, in our society. What happens is a degree of numbing of becoming distant from, of becoming disconnected from our experience, from the feeling, from the sensory touch and contact. That I'm not just talking about that we feel warm or coolness or pleasant or unpleasant, but that we really are there fully inhabiting that experience. Because we can still feel and yet not fully be inhabiting what's there. There's a way in which we can have kind of sort of held back We don't quite trust or allow ourselves to be fully in contact with the experience. And it somehow seems safer because life can be scary, unpredictable. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's it's tender. It's raw. And it somehow seems safer to not quite fully be there. And... This, this pattern, this process of somehow withdrawing from, tightening, hardening, density, and it's, it's like, you know, like a classic version of it is if, when, if some sharp or sudden pain or scary thing arises, we clench the breath. Have you ever noticed that happen? Just, and the system kind of tightens, and it's like we don't quite have to feel what it is that's there when we do that. And of course that pattern... If we just tighten and then in the next moment breathe out, well, that's fine. That's okay. It's just the body doing what it does. Heart and mind too. But what tends to happen, that pattern of tightening, of holding, of clenching, starts to become habituated, unconscious, and either through 
the impact of very strong, difficult experience, or through just the repetition of many, many not-so-difficult, but nonetheless unpleasant or scary experiences, that patterning becomes part of the uh, kind of the framework or the dynamic underlying experience of our, our bodies, our hearts, our minds. And with regard to that, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that that mechanism has a place. When we're really little, when we're young, we don't have many other options for dealing with what might otherwise be overwhelming stimuli, impact or experiences that we may not actually be able to handle. Objectively, that may be so. And the system is set up to just deal with that by shutting down, by holding tight, by hanging on in that way. I don't know if you have a sense of that. I can feel when I sort of name it. I can feel the, it's like the traces of it in my body. My body knows what that is, even if I'm just talking about it. Um, And as a child, that's maybe, or an infant, that's the only option we may have available to us. But we don't necessarily realize as we grow into the fullness of our adult maturity that our capacity is infinitely greater and larger than it was then. And we carry the, the response pattern and the fear associated with it into our adult lives and as a result tend to hold ourselves back in all kinds of ways. And so there might be some degree of of safety or security that we derive from this pattern that gives us sort of a, a place that maybe we know, that we feel okay with in some level. But but there's also something about that that I think we feel and that we know is limited and is bound and is ultimately deeply, not just unsatisfying, but deeply painful to us in terms of the, the heart of our life. A different kind of pain, more, more in terms of the, the sense of, of what is possible for us as human beings that is circumscribed by that pattern, that tendency, that contraction, and the way in which we get bound into it, locked into it. And so we need to we need to reflect a little bit upon how that process takes place and particularly with regard to the mechanisms of fear and how fear as one expression and form of aversion and therefore a response to that which is unpleasant or painful, unwished for or threatening or equally that which might just be kind of not flattering to us that somehow threatens our sense of who we want to be or how we want to be seen which is one area and realm we could experience fear, right through to those things which may have actually threatened our physical survival or the survival of our our community or of our families that may have been real dangers we've encountered in our life or we're aware of. And what happens with the fear is we tend to very quickly, because it's a survival mechanism that's responding, we get... um, We we, we go into our mind and we, we attempt to deal with it without really thinking too much about it. We override the ability to reflect and just respond. And, and I think this isn't news to anyone. We know about this. In terms of the, the process that we can look at and reflect on really usefully, to see that the fear in taking us into our, into our minds, what it tends to do is project the story into the future of what is going to happen to me and how that is going to be and how bad that's going to be. That's what it does. And, of course, that's a different thing, I just want to say, than caution. Caution is when we, there is actually immediate present danger. And it's really useful that we pay attention in that situation to that threat or danger because it's actually here. So walking on the road, caution is good. Vehicle coming along, that's actually a useful thing to be really attentive and it might feel a bit like fear but actually it's wisdom and caution saying let's not be in the middle of the road when that truck comes past good idea really good idea but if we're walking along and there's no sound or sight of a truck and we're really scared about a truck coming along that's different that's not so useful if that's happening we're less likely to be able to respond when something that isn't a truck but equally dangerous turns up like maybe I don't know Actually, probably there's not much on the road more dangerous than a truck. But <laughs> Anyway, um, 
we might be listening for the track and then, uh, you know, we don't see something else that's there. Maybe it's a, a skunk or a porcupine. <laughs> and so in that, we go towards into the future with the mind. And what's really important to notice is that the fear is happening in the present moment. It's happening right here. And, and it's accessible, it can be known, it can be felt, it can be met in the body. And it's usually really unpleasant, so the last thing we want to do is feel it. We want to figure out how we can make sure we don't have to have the experience we're afraid of. And we get lost in that, because we can't. We can't deal with that, because it's not happening. We can deal with what is happening, which is the reaction, the response in the body. And sometimes, of course, this arises for us in our practice when we start to get closer to those places that we've managed to avoid having to feel in our lives. That we've managed to somehow just keep safely out of our view. So it's useful to be able to just acknowledge when fear arises, and to breathe with it, to give it space, to pay attention to the sense of how the body tightens and contracts and hardens in that. And to see with the with the support of the outbreath how we can invite and allow the body to soften, to widen, to open. We can't make that happen. We don't need to force it in any way. But just being conscious of the mechanism, making conscious what is unconscious, we're no longer bound by it in the same way. And the possibility of some opening, some softening, becomes available to us. And with that opening, with that softening, there's a we start to also access our resources. Because the, the ironic thing is that when we contract to try and avoid that which is difficult, we also lose, we might lose contact with the difficult, but we also lose contact with our resources, our capacity to actually meet it, to open to it, to hold, and to allow it to do perhaps what it needs to do. So to be able to notice, to be able to name when fear is present, when it arises in relationship to our experience. And what's really interesting, this is something I was uh, having a, uh, two or three weeks of personal retreat myself earlier in the year at Guy House in the, um, the retreat centre in Devon near where Christina and I live. And I was just reflecting on the, the process and the mechanism of fear at one point and uh, this thought and I realized it was an insight occurred to me I was like it's always nice to have an insight um, and I, it, it, it came to me in this form it was like it said you know everything that you fear has already happened now that doesn't quite make sense given what I said that we seem to fear things that haven't yet happened but actually it was what it actually meant what I understood in it was that and it was actually profoundly reassuring to have that understanding because actually I survived it so it's fine it's okay it's not as scary as it looked because that of course when we're imagining something scary in the future the only basis we have for doing that is projecting some version of our past experience that we've already had into the future some difficult past experience projecting into the future and being afraid of it there is no other basis for doing that does that make sense do you follow that and that sense about it's the past projected of the future is something we've talked about, or I've talked about, reflected on often. But suddenly seeing that, oh, what the implication of that is, I've already experienced the thing. Oh, and I survived it. Hey. Well, that gives a whole different framework for meeting that process, for releasing that particular mechanism. It's like, oh, okay. And I'm not saying that that means that if I'm afraid something horrible is going to happen, that means it's going to happen. That's not what I'm saying by that. Is that clear? It's more like, oh, it's something that's already happened that's somehow being picked up, put in front of me as another version of that that's probably going to be worse. That's what we do with our mind, isn't it? It's not, yeah, okay, so if something was difficult, but this will be much more difficult. But that's actually just, a, in a way, a reaction fueled by the fear. The truth is, what I'm afraid of has happened. And it may not have been easy or fun. I might still be processing it in some way. But actually I survived it. 
And, and the bottom line with that is understanding the mechanism of fear fails to recognize that because it, at some level, has the, the power it has is because at some level we imagine, and it's not true, but at some level we imagine we are not going to survive this. And that's when we're really caught. And that's when it's really important to see, oh, this is a mechanism of fear. But the truth is that I'm here. And the feeling might be unpleasant, but actually it is possible to meet this. We can meet this. And we start to understand over time and the encounter with such experiences that difficult and challenging as it is to do so, the cost of not doing so in terms of the loss of our sensitivity and the loss of the quality of connection and of intimacy with life, with our life and with life, with others, our body, anything, the loss of that is actually more deeply painful, more deeply sort of grievous to us than that which might be difficult or painful that we're trying to avoid. It takes a while to really get that and to really know that for oneself. And if that doesn't seem to resonate for you, it's fine. I'm not trying to talk you into it. But certainly that's how it seems to me, and that's been one of the important learnings in relationship to this territory of my own journey and practice. And uh, we actually really, I think, wish for and long to contact the tenderness of our heart, the sensitivity of our heart. It's something that's precious and beautiful and deeply moving when we do, though very rarely is it easy when we do. And one of the bases that for me made it, or experiences that for me made it really clear what's going on in this in this territory was a um, encounter I had here at IMS, and I'm thinking it was 15 or 20 years ago, um, the same retreat, and um, I was going for a walk in between sittings down to the uh, down to the pond. And at some point, walking along the track to the pond, and actually along the side of the pond, Gaston Pond over there, I encountered in front of me, two, three, maybe four yards ahead, a snake, and it was a big snake. It was like a substantial snake crossing the path. And I come from New Zealand, we have no snakes. So this is like both fascinating and terrifying in the same moment. Like, and my body did that loop. And then I realized, it's over there, I'm over here. And I breathed out. I haven't stepped on a snake, that would be something. But I was so fascinated and so it's like, I want to get closer to that thing. And so really, and you know, in those sort of moments you don't have to think, shall I be mindful? One is really mindful. One is really mindful. Really present. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'll just wander over to it while thinking about something else. No, <laughs> that didn't happen. Now, yeah? as part of the actual, when we come in contact with our, our vulnerability, our sensitivity, it, it actually brings us to a natural quality of mindfulness, of presence, because it, it just completely makes sense. But anyway, in this process, I just took a step towards it and another, and I was... The, 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 both the excitement, the fascination, and the fear were, were increasing together. And as I got a bit closer, because it was kind of, it was sort of, I don't know, late afternoon towards evening, maybe, I can't remember, but it wasn't, there wasn't, the light wasn't that good. As I got a bit closer, I realized, it's not a snake. <laughs> it's a snake's skin. Now, it had been a snake. So I didn't feel like, oh, wow, that was a bit silly. There's all these stories in the Dharma teachings about the dangers of getting a snake and a rope mixed up. And either way, you know, if you treat a rope like it's a snake, you end up feeling really silly. And if you treat a snake like it's a rope, thinking it's a rope, you actually could get hurt. But anyway, it was a snake's skin. And I sort of just stopped and contemplated it for a moment. And I thought, my gosh. A snake had to get out of its skin. 
And we kind of know about that, I guess. We know that they do it. In fact, think about it. Yeah, they have to actually, every year, the snake has to get out of its skin. And I started thinking, I was like, so in what condition must it come out? Well, you know, I'm sure you know, it's not a biology lesson here, that, you know, in order to grow, it's got this nice protective skin and these scales that are quite hard and tough, but they don't flex that much. So for it to grow, it has to get out of the skin and it's got to come out kind of soft. Maybe even juicy, I was guessing. I don't know. But, but it can't come out with another tough skin on it because that couldn't be any bigger than the last one. Could it? It has to come out with something soft and vulnerable. And that's got to be scary. And that's not the moment it wants a, a hawk to fly past and spot it. But you know, if it doesn't get out of its skin, it dies. It has to. And that's, that was the reflection that went through me in that moment. And, and I had this incredibly deep sense of empathy, I guess, for the, for the snake. The sense of, wow, what that must be to have to climb out of your skin every year to live. And it gave me then just reflect, to reflect on you know, the meditative process where we're not suggesting you climb out of your skin, in fact, quite the opposite in that, but really what it means to inhabit, to come into, to inhabit our bodies, what happens is we do that quite naturally. You don't have to mean to do this. It's uh, fortunate or unfortunate, dependent on which way you look at it. But you don't have to mean for this to happen, but it does happen. We start to become more sensitive. We start to become more in touch with the natural tenderness of, of what it is to be, what we are. Something which is perhaps immediately obvious to us if we see a little baby, newborn or you know, weeks, months old even. And there's something about what it is that we are that is of that. It's not the total or the whole picture, but it's an important dimension. And the process of coming back again and again into our experience, coming back again and again into the immediacy of what's happening, being aware of those elements that we've spoken about in terms of pleasurable, unpleasurable, seeing how that the reactions to those tend to take us out of the experience. And likewise to the neutral, we tend to come out of the experience. So part of the importance of of recognizing what's happening there is that we can come back in to the experience. It's, it's not just that we're talking about being present and not getting lost in the story, but it's actually to do with the degree of intimacy, of sensitivity, of deeply felt experiencing of this life that's happening right here. And the way that touches us, the way that opens us, in fact, because although so many of the moments we can see that some, they're sweet, some may feel poignant, even maybe bitter, some quite ordinary, kind of unremarkable, and yet the sustaining of the attention into the experience, the coming back into it, and the deepening of that, there's a softening. It's like bringing moisture into dry earth. Something that's become rigid and hard and solid becomes again actually something pliable, something malleable, something in which things can grow. And again, that's relevant to the process of developing, of, of growing the, the remarkable and um, beautiful potential of what it is to be a human being. So many good qualities and capacities we have. In terms of kindness, generosity, patience, courage, steadfastness, compassion, clarity. These things grow in the moist soil of our experience. And the moisture is, is, is that quality of caring attentiveness that we've spoken about. That courageous willingness to inhabit and to re-inhabit. To be intimate with our experience is not an easy thing. 
at least some of the time. We might be drawn to it. We might like think I'd like that, but there will be moments for sure in the journey where we're not we're gonna wonder whether it's really a good idea. Because it challenges us and it challenges the, the whole nature of the sense of self as something that kind of creates rigidities and structures that are ossified, that are without moisture, essentially. And that wherever we start bringing the moisture of attention into the field of our experience, and particularly those places that have not received that moisture, what happens is the very structures that we feel bound in, that we might have created for protection, or to kind of stabilize and organize our world in some way to make it easier to handle, they, they soften. They start to become more open, more fluid. And there's a, a number of things that happen as that takes place. One is that quality of intimacy that I, that I touched on, that sense that we start to feel not so far from, or perhaps at all, not at all even apart from what's happening. That the sense of the happening and the someone it's happening to starts to dissolve a little bit, starts to soften a little bit, and there's actually just the what's happening. And there isn't a, a, an analyzing of what's happening to say, well, I'll experience and inhabit this, and I won't experience and inhabit that, which inevitably separates us from, disconnects us from the experience. And in that, there's a, there's a quality of aliveness that comes in the sensi- with the sensitivity, with the openness, a quality of aliveness that's actually, that's actually vital, that's beautiful, that's, I think, something that we long for and that we love when we encounter it. And sometimes just, you know, I think maybe I mentioned it, speaking about walking meditation a couple of days ago, that sense of, you know, taking one's shoes off and really rediscovering the sensitivity of our feet. How much aliveness there is in our feet. Which for the most part, for many of us in our lives, are wrapped in something to make sure we don't have to feel anything when we put our foot down. It's the primary function of the shoe, apart from, you know, fashion conscious element and other things, you know, make sure we don't have to feel anything that hurts. And we can say that's protection, and it is. It's appropriate in circumstances. It's not nothing wrong with it. But when we come into, it's like the situation where we can rediscover the sensitivity, actually we also start to feel the aliveness. And this is the gift that we offer ourselves, one of the gifts we offer ourselves with the courage and the nobility of heart to say, yes, I want to step into my experience, not step out of it. And we may, in this journey, at times be asked, we could say be called upon, to feel things that we don't feel or we don't think we want to have to experience. To open ourselves to some of the places of our own journeys, our histories, our lives, and just acknowledge that, yes, this has been part of what has shaped my life, my experience. To open ourselves to what goes on in our communities, in our world where there is so much suffering, so much tragedy, so much exploitation, injustice of the environment, of of people, so much division and conflict. To allow ourselves to be open to both the personal and universal dimensions of how it is. This is part of the invitation and the challenge of our path, of our journey. Probably 95% of the retreats I teach, for some reason or another, I start, or the Dharma talk is scheduled at 7.30, which means I wouldn't have been talking for that long at this point. I just remembered that it started at 7.15, so uh, (laughs) just doing a quick bit of editing here.
so there's a kind of a question, an invitation in terms of our willingness. In terms of our willingness to enter really fully, courageously, wholeheartedly into this life that's happening right here and that's always happening right here and right now. One of the elements of this that's important to recognize and to reflect upon is that a mechanism that we use for attempting to handle this challenging or difficult dimension of experience is that we easily look for the cause in order to blame. As if by blaming, as if by identifying fault and blaming, judging, rejecting, pushing away. How this tend, I'm not doing this to anyone personally. Just that movement, energetically, is how we attempt to somehow get away from the difficult. And the, it doesn't actually have that effect at all. I'm sure you're quite aware of that. It doesn't successfully get us away from the painful or the difficult. But the mechanism of judgment of blame, of rejecting, is an attempt to, if I could have just got that person, or this person, or those people, or these people, to have done something differently, then it wouldn't be this way. That's what the story pretty much says. And if it had been that way, then I wouldn't have to be having this experience. Or that which concerns me wouldn't have to be happening. Now, at times we do need to be able to recognize where there is responsibility in oneself and responsibility in others and actually address that, engage with that and take steps in response to such responsibility. But the process that often happens for us that we can learn incredibly early, incredibly young, again before we have a clue that we're learning this, is that we actually blame ourselves. We blame ourselves. We think that somehow it's my fault that it's like this. And we might know, of course, that it's not in our brains when we think about it as an adult, because we know it's not my fault at one level. But actually, fundamentally, we can often carry a sense of identity, a structure, we could say, within the psyche that's equally held within the body that has a tightness and a hardness and a harshness to it in response to ourselves. And it's sometimes something we encounter when we engage in the practice of loving-kindness. When we're invited to extend friendliness and care and warmth to ourselves. Sometimes, and it's really painful when this happens, I think, for many people it can be the case, that we actually feel quite the opposite towards ourselves at times. And that's one of those tender places that it's really important to be kind with. And equally not to blame or judge ourselves if that is our response to those invitations of extending kindness to ourselves, and we find actually a hardness or a harshness there at times. We get given the messages about what's okay and what's not okay very early on. And we take them on without realizing, imagining that somehow things are my fault. And you know... Like almost, I would say, probably 80 or 90% of the thoughts that we have, and certainly probably 90 to 99% of the thoughts that are unhelpful, we learn them from other people who teach them to us without us realizing it. And you know, the funny thing is they learned them from other people in exactly the same way. Who learned them from other people? Who learned them from other people? And if you try and find where that started, it goes right back to that little single-celled organism going, or ah. Because there isn't a point where it started apart from that, that we can actually track. So we see this is not so personal in that regard. And we need to understand that. And the understanding of that, I think, comes in, in two ways. One, that we recognize that this is a, a message we've been given that may not be true. Just in terms of what I was speaking, if we're just allowing there to be some doubt, some uncertainty. And to look and see, with there may of course be things that we have done 
that were unskillful. It's for sure. There certainly have been in my life. And to actually just stop and reflect upon them, to contemplate them. This is part of kind of really turning to the truth of our lives. What I think we might see, and what certainly I have seen many times, is that those times when I've done something that have harmed another, that have hurt another, that have harmed myself, hurt myself, that have failed to be as noble or as courageous or as with as much integrity as I might have wished to live in my life, what I can see is that those experiences have come out of an attempt to care for myself, to take care of something where I didn't know or wasn't able because of the pressure of either fear or sense of need, overwhelmed a sensitivity and a respect or responsiveness to the larger picture. To be able to just forgive ourselves for the limitations of our lives, because we all have them, to understand they come from a kind of a blindness where we just don't quite see what it is that we're doing. We don't quite see its effect. The mistakes, the failures, the suffering, the harm that may have arisen out of our lives is something we do need to take responsibility for in terms of seeing what the patterns and the tendencies are that allow these behaviours to take place in our immediate life and in our larger world. Culturally and socially, we equally have such responsibility for addressing such patterns and behaviours. But not from a place of judgement and rejection from a place of deeply caring about the welfare and the well-being of this being, that being, all beings. That is the only place where it is effectively going to be sourced, that movement, that effort, and that engagement for transformation and for change. So to forgive ourselves for our limitations, our failings, our mistakes, to understand that it's inevitable it's in the nature of our journey that we will not be able to see until we can see where we are blind. Until we, don't, until we see it, we can't see it. That's it. It's kind of <laughs> too obvious to say. But part of the possibility of our human journey and our life is that we start to see more and more those places. And then we start to be able to make choices to say, actually, I commit myself. I undertake to find a way to do it differently. And maybe I enlist the support of my friends in that. One of the blessings of the aging process is I can't actually see this microphone. Um, so excuse me if I bang it and make an unpleasant noise. I can only just see what's these notes in front of me as well, which is probably, I'm not sure if that's good or bad. <laughs> sort of opportunity for spontaneity. So there's one element of handling this, as I said, it's to do with just acknowledging the, the underlying caring in our behavior, even if it's unskillful, that even the things that are harmful and unskillful, at some level come from some attempt to take care of that which we care about. And this is true of actually even the most tragic and horrific things in the world. That some attempt to take care of some tragically limited sphere of concern leads to disregarding that which falls outside it or actively exploiting or harming that which lies outside a limited field of concern that is held. And so trusting that there's actually at the heart of what it is that we are, there's actually a caring and a, and a wish for well-being that's circumscribed by the, the limitation of our view and the limitations of our identifying with a limited fragment of the totality, of the wholeness, of the undividedness of life of which we are part. And the other piece, or the other part of how we come to open and soften in this territory, I think is really the reflecting 
and the contemplating just the universality and the inevitability of that which is difficult. And we've touched on this and spoken of it already. And yet it's such a, such a powerful, such an important teaching to really be able to, to name. And I remember the experience of having it first articulated to me in the context of a, of a Dharma talk on a retreat long ago. Just that, oh yeah, you know, sometimes it's really hard. It's really difficult. There is that which is hard to bear we call dukkha, or suffering, or the difficult, the unsatisfactory nature of things. That this is not the whole of, but a fundamental dimension of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be alive. And to actually just allow ourselves to contemplate that, to reflect on it, that yes, this is how it is. For not just me and you, but for all beings. You know, the Buddha spoke of it again and again and again. The importance, the value of reflecting on this, that we as human beings being born are subject to aging, sickness and death is the first little sort of phrase that the Buddha spoke of. That's at least the translation that was around for a long, long time when I first heard it, birth, aging, sickness, death. And I used to sometimes wonder, why did sickness come after aging because sickness happened to me long before I noticed aging was happening I thought the Buddha's usually pretty good on that sort of thing he would have got it in the right order and it was recently when I was uh, reading a uh, an alternate translation that uh, it was birth aging decay death and I thought hmm okay that's different isn't it that kind of sickness that doesn't get better that kind of functionality that deteriorates, that we call decay, you know, starts first experiences in our teeth, maybe, if you're unfortunate enough to have had that experience as a kid. I certainly did. Um, but, of course, it, <laughs> it moves on from there. And, you know, as far as I can tell, this, this body's doing pretty well, but not as well as it used to. Not by quite a way. And I'm sure you all have your own version of that story. I think many of us get beyond maybe the first... 15 or 20 years without starting to notice that one. Birth, aging, decay and death. We all are subject to this. If we reflect on a little, what I find is it actually softens the heart. That we share this. Ajahn Buddhadasa, much loved and respected teacher in Thailand in the 20th century, who would always begin his Dharma talks. Dear brothers and sisters in birth, Aging, sickness, and death. And it's kind of like, wow, come and join my family? Mm, they didn't put that on the retreat description, did they? You know. And likewise, the Buddha went on to speak. He said he talked about sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. And you think, oh, like, oh, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair? Now, and yet perhaps there's something that we recognize that this is something we may have encountered in our lives. At times. And you know, having a hu- just as having a body, birth, aging, sickness, death, it's for sure. Having a sensitive heart, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair, this is something we'll encounter. And, you know, we sometimes think, well, look, if I just lived my life really well, if I'd had the right conditions and got it all together, that wouldn't have to happen. You know? Do we ever have that thought? Do you ever had that hopeful thought? It's beautifully sort of um, optimistic to give it as much credit as we can. Here's how it's not possible. If you love something in this life, someone, something, at some, part, some point you will be parted from that. Through intentional choice, through accident, through death, you will be parted from that which you love. And that will be painful, tender, sore. We'll feel that. And if in this life you never love something or someone, that will hurt. That will be painful. That will be hard for the heart to bear. There isn't a third option. Can you see that? There isn't a third option. And something again about just reflecting on that. Oh, there's a, there's a softening quality I find. Just, oh, okay, yes. 
the fact that my life has included some of this and will inevitably include some more of it. That's something that's actually shared. That's something that we all participate in. And there's a there's a softening, there's a tenderizing quality. It happens to ourselves, it happens to others. This is how it is. And it makes it very clear that it's not our fault. It's not this way because we've done something wrong. Or that because somehow we deserve or should be subject to this. No. It's because this is part of the realm of our life. And this is actually part of what asks us to wake up. This is part of what calls us into the journey and the process of awakening. The very fact that things are difficult at times. Sometimes excruciatingly so. That's part of what wakes us up. The pull to unconsciousness would just curl up in a cosy, warm, comfortable ball to be unimpinged upon, but asleep. And that's not satisfying to, to the depth of what it is that we are, to, to the, 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 the potential of the human being that has the capacity to know depths of wisdom, of clarity, of compassion, of peace, of freedom. And that something in us knows that's possible for us. Though we don't always remember that that something in us knows that. We maybe need to be reminded And so, there's a way in which this practice asks us to take a risk with being tender, with being open, to lose the hard defining boundaries that we hold, consciously or not so consciously, in relationship to that which is difficult. And there can be a way in which we might fear that to let go of, to release those positionings and those patternings that we might somehow dissolve into some undifferentiated mush or something kind of just uh, sort of non-functional. But in fact, what we find, what we discover, and rather sweetly and beautifully, is that that softening, that tenderizing, leads to a quality of fluidity and openness that is shapeable, that is adaptable, that is responsive, and that is not bound by the rigidity, the armoring, the tightness, the structuring, that it dissolves and that it ultimately replaces. And so we have this invitation to, to be close, to be intimate, to be tender, to be open. With a, with a real depth of caring and kindness for this human condition, which we share in. And this, this openness, this tenderness, this sensitivity is something that takes us to the boundless, the vast, the open. And in this, the heart comes to rest. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all here, in our practice here and in our lives, may we find the courage 
and the willingness to be in touch with our tender hearts and our humanity, to open our hearts to this shared humanity which we all partake of, which touches all of life, that we may live with kindness, with compassion, and with freedom and ease in this world for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. So thank you for your, your presence and your practice and please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.